morning, church, as you are having a seat, if you would please grab a copy of the scriptures uh, and open to Exodus 36. Exodus 36, we are continuing through our series, through our journey in the book of Exodus, and we have this week, and then next week we're going to be done. Wow. Isn't that, a, that's like we've been journeying through and the Lord has been so good to show us more of all of who he is. And so I can't believe uh, we just have two more weeks. And so I'm just pumped for this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Um, so we're going to be in Exodus 36 and we're going to go all the way through to Exodus 39. So I'm not going to be able to read all of it. Um, sorry if I'm echoing. I don't know if that's my fault or uh, maybe it's, I'll blame the beard. It usually is. Uh, so we're going to read it in chunks. So but I encourage you to go home, make sure you read all of it in its entirety. But if I read it all, it would take me 30 minutes just to read it all. So we are going to jump right in. But Exodus, starting in 36, the material that we're going to see, uh, we've seen a large part of it already in passages earlier in our study of Exodus. It's almost duplicated verbatim. And so the, earliest, the earlier passages was God instructing Moses on the mountain in, in the exact way way they were to build the tabernacle, the way all the various pieces of furniture that would be in the tabernacle would be constructed, the way the courtyard would be set up, the way all the different gates and all the different uh, hooks and all the different ornaments would be set up, and it was given an exact specification. It was this instruction to Moses. This passage, however, as we get into 30, really starting in 35, we, we, we entered into a little bit last week, all the way to 39, is the actual construction of the tabernacle. Not just the instruction that God gives to Moses on the way that it's to be built, but it's actually God gathering all the craftsmen, God gathering to himself all the people who are ready to put their hands to work to actually construct this thing. It's, it's the recording of Moses and the faithful leaders of Israel carrying out the instructions that God had previously given to them. And in his mercy, in God's great mercy, he is allowing the children of Israel to begin the construction of this place that he will dwell. This place that he will dwell in their midst despite the sin of Exodus 32 through 34, the golden calf. Despite them falling into idolatry, despite them running after another God, God in his mercy is letting the people of Israel construct for him a place where he will dwell among them. And so one of the major themes of this passage as we walk through it and as we're thinking on it is worship, is worshiping God according to his way and his word. See, all of the material repeated in intricate detail, almost verbatim in the passages we've looked at previously, but only we're going to see a slight variation in the verbal tense of how they're said and how uh, they're written. So it was, you shall do such and such, you shall do such and such, and now it's they did this, they did that, they did this. So it's a change in verbal tense. In this constant repetition, you see this over and over and over again as you read through all of these verses, and it's, they did just as had been commanded to them. And this is obviously there, this repetition of, they did just as God commanded, they did just as God commanded, they did just as God commanded, is meant to impress upon us the importance 
of doing exactly what God said in terms of how we are to approach him in worship. To do it just as God said. Not just how we think we should. Not just what feels right to me. Not just, oh, it's up to interpretation. But God has given to us his word and he shows us and tells us this is what it means to approach a holy God. A God of holiness and love that we just sang about. So we're going to start in, we're going to read some of the first section, and it's all concerning the construction of this tabernacle that we've been studying and reading about and hearing about it. And when I say uh, tabernacle, I want us to remember, I think we've said it a lot, and it's given in such uh, like intricate detail that I think we maybe sometimes forget what it looks like. Remember, this is a tent. A lot of times we think like this giant temple, this big, huge, ornate thing, or we think it's this, it is beautiful, it is ornate in its detail, but it's a tent. It's portable. It's meant to be packed up. It's meant to be moved. It's meant to be moved to along with God's people on the journey that he's taking them. So um, when we're hearing this, we hear this place, this tent that God will dwell with his people. So let's hear God's word beginning in Exodus 36, verse 8. And I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, and I'm just going to call out where I'm going to be jumping to uh, next. And you can follow along on the screen behind me as well. So here we go. It's starting. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of, they were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubims skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits. The breadth of each curtain, four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. Verse 20. And then he made the upright frames of the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of the frame, and the cubit and a half was the breadth of each frame. Verse 31, skipping down. And he made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames, one on the side of the tabernacle, five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. Verse 35. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet Yarns and fine twined linen with cherubim skillfully worked into, he made it. And for it, he made four pillars of acacia and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold and cast them in four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework and its five pillars with hooks. He overlaid their capitals and their fillets were of gold and their five bases were of bronze. And so quick pause here as we're walking through this passage, we could easily get lost in the details Maybe some of you, even in just that quick overview, we're starting to glaze over with cubits and fillets and all sorts of things we don't normally say. But it's important here. There's three things I want us to really grab hold of as we're walking through all of these, uh, not just instructions, but seeing God's people do these things. Is first, the repetition points to the importance of obeying God's commands in worship. It's repeated on purpose. It's verbatim from the instructions he gave us previously. 
in Exodus. And now they're actually enacting it. They're doing it exactly as God had told them. Second, the tent itself, the building of the tent is a sign of grace, is a sign of the very grace of God in giving the presence of God to his people. This wasn't a guaranteed thing. It was the grace of God that that this tabernacle, this tent was being erected in their presence so that God and his presence could dwell with his people. So it's a sign of the grace of God. And three, as we continue to move on through these chapters, the building of the furnishings, all of the things that are inside this tabernacle, all the accoutrements, all of the furniture, all of the tables, all of the things that we're going to walk through here point to God's grace in providing atonement for sin. Because all of those pieces, all of those pieces of furniture are there to serve a purpose so that God's people could enter into his presence. A sinful people can go into the presence of a holy God and experience him. So the repetition is clear. God says, my words are paramount. They're important. The building itself is a sign of grace that he longs to dwell with his people. And thirdly, all of the things inside of it serve the purpose of atoning for the sin of the people so that God and his presence could be with his people. So this first section, the repetition of the words, are a way of, of, of saying to us that the, the very the, the importance of listening and clinging to the very words of God, that in order to approach him, in order to have fellowship with him, it's important that we do so in accordance with God's commands. So he gave us his word, and now his word is being exacted and being, uh, and being done exactly as he's given it to us. His words, his written word that is given is so important. That's the exact opposite of how the world interprets worship, I think, today. If, 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 if you ask 20 people on the street, they're going to give you 20 different uh, ways that they think they should approach God. Well, I think I should do it this way. I like to do it this way. I like to have this environment. I like to have that. Not to say that we can't have preferences that we like, that we think that God can move in those things, but if we do it apart from the word of God, what he's given us to approach him and the way he tells us to approach him, it's just another God of our own invention. It's another God of our own making. And we've essentially done what the Israelites did in the golden calf. We're falling into idolatry by saying, this is the way that we'll call upon God and he'll move for us. No, God has given to us his word. He's given to us his way. He says, this is how you'll approach me as my people. It matters. It matters. In Exodus 32, Israel decided, you know what? I wonder if it really does matter. And they said, I'm going to worship my own way. I'm going to get to the presence of God kind of how I feel like it should go. And what was the result? What was the result? The result was the almost forever loss of the presence of God with God's people. And it's as if here, as Moses is writing this down and showing us how they're obeying now, it's almost like he's delighting in the fact that he can write down, they did just like God said. They did just like God said, in contrast to they went their own way. 
It's this beautiful contrast. And Moses is saying, look at what they're doing. They're obeying God's word. And look at what's happening. They're doing exactly what God said. But there's another thing. Um, Remember, they're building a tent. Uh, And the very fact that God... This, this always strikes me when studying and reading through Exodus. The very fact that God would live in a tent in the midst of his people was a tremendous sign of the humility of God. God, who made the cosmos, who breathed everything into existence, who crafted everything, the maker of all things, God dwelling in a tent, no matter how elaborate this tent was, and it was elaborate, the fact that he would dwell in their midst in a tent, I think in what it does for us is a sign that points us forward to our Lord Jesus Christ, who in John says, tabernacled among us. The word put on flesh and tabernacled among us. The same God, the God who made all things, tabernacled among them in a tent. It points us forward to Jesus in humility, wrapped himself in flesh and said, I'm going to be with them. I'm going to dwell with them. Um, And don't miss the point that the very fact that they're building this tent, as I said, is a act of the grace of God because what do they deserve? They deserve to not even be living in the wilderness because of their sin and rebellion. And this tent is a sign that God is longing to draw near to them, to have fellowship with them, and to be their God, and that they would be his people, to tabernacle among them, that he would be accessible to them as his people. And the fact that after their rebellion, after they ran away and crafted a God of their own making, that God would still pour out his grace on a people like that is a glorious blessing. They deserve to be destroyed, and yet God in his mercy says, no, I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna make a way for you. Even in your sin, I'm gonna make a way for it to be atoned for, that you can come into relationship with me and I'm gonna dwell in your midst. It's showing us something. It's showing us something of the grace of God and the forgiveness of God's people through his provision. Now, let's go on to Exodus 37. We're gonna start in verse one, and this is the making of the Ark of the Covenant. Bezalel made the Ark of Acacia wood, Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast it for four rings of gold and four feet and two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and then put the poles into the rings on the side on the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold and he made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat 
one cherubim on one end and one cherubim on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces toward one another. Toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. Now, this is the beginning of the section that will detail the making of all the equipment for the tabernacle. So he talked about the tabernacle and the walls and all the things going up in 36 and 37. He's going to be talking about all the equipment and all the things that are going to be placed inside and the people building these things and making these things. And it will continue on through 38. So let's continue on 37 and read about some of these things. Beginning in verse 10, chapter 37. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold around it. So remember, the ark was the focal point of the Holy of Holies. The ark was the focal point of the presence of God with his people. But here we have uh, the description of the making of the bread, the table of the bread of the presence. And the table of the bread of the presence, you can go back and listen to, we did a whole sermon on it uh, months ago, was symbolic of God's provision of all of their needs. So this table that was laid out with the bread on it that would be replaced every day was a reminder of God's people that God will provide for his people every day their needs. God will provide for his people the bread of the presence of God, the daily bread symbolizing the provision of God for the people. Now in verse 17, moves to the lampstand, more of the equipment in, in this holy of holies. He made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand and on the lampstand itself were four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of it. Their calyxes and their branches were of one piece. The whole of it was a single piece of hammered work of gold. And he made its seven lamps and its tongs and its trays of pure gold. And he made all of the utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And next he goes on to describe the altar of incense, verse 25. And he made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit. Its breadth was a cubit. It was square and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold. Its top and around its side and its horns and he made a molding of gold around it. And he made two rings of gold on it, under its molding, on two opposite sides of it, as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he made the holy anointing oil also, and the pure fragrant incense, blended as by the perfumer. So you'll recall in previous 
sermons, we looked at the altar of incense. We looked at the symbolic purpose of it. Um, There was so much symbolism in it, but also a very practical purpose in the context of what they're building. If you think about this that they're building, this tabernacle, this place, this altar, and all the things that are going to happen there, the priests that would walk into this place in the context of the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin with all the slaughtered animals that they would have brought from the outer courts to this place, the the smell of death would have been overpowering. And here we have the incense, a very practical thing to have the sweetness of the smells that would come, not the smells of death that God made for his people to overpower those scents, this visceral sense. You're getting a sense of what's going to be taking place even by all the equipment that is being given to us and all the things that are being made and all the skilled craftsmen that are putting their skills uh, to happen here because what is being set up here is the sacrificial system. And then in chapter 38, he moves from speaking of the altar of incense to the altar of burnt offerings, which is why the altar of incense exists. So we're going to read verses 1 through 8 in chapter 38. And he made the altar of burnt offerings of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its breadth. It was square and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it. And he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, the fire pans. He made all the utensils of bronze. He, and he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze under the ledge extending halfway down. He cast four rings on its four corners of the bronze gratings as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. He put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards. And he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now the next section, the outer courtyard. I'm just gonna read a few verses here. 38, starting in verse nine, he made the court. For the south side of the hangings of the courts were a fine twined linen, a hundred cubits. Their 20 pillars and their 20 bases were of bronze, but the hooks and the pillars and their fillets were of silver. Now, um, I want to draw attention to several things here in chapters 37 and 38. So we have the instruction of the making of all the furnishings. We have all the detail here. We have all the makings of all the different accoutrements in the tabernacle that follow the natural order of construction. If you've ever built something, you've ever had a a home built, uh, you've ever watched a home being built, you build the walls, right? First you have the foundation, then you have the walls. And then what do you do after all the walls and stuff are up? Then you start filling the inside of it. So this is the natural order of construction. It's now everything's being built. Earlier in Exodus, we, it's basically reverse order. Here we're going 
the reverse order of the construction, and now all the things on the inside are being placed. The equipment is being uh, now filled up in the tabernacle. In chapter 37, Bezalel makes the ark, and then the mercy seat, and then the two cherubim. He builds the table of the bread of the presence and its vessels. He makes the lampstand. And the chapter ends with the making of the altar of incense and the perfumer's production of that holy anointing oil that I commented on earlier. And each of these furnishings, each of these things being made are designed to remind us of the presence of the Lord. And at the same time, they are designed in their, in their uses, in their functions of our great need, of God's people's great need for mediation and propitiation. Those are big words. For someone to stand in the gap for them. Or propitiation, propitiation is an offering averting the wrath of God. The very reason all of these things are there, the very reason all of these things are constructed and built and done exactly according to the word of God is because of our great need for a mediator to step in so that God's people could be in right relationship with a holy God. Mediation and propitiation, an offering to avert the wrath of God. And the tabernacle and all of the things inside of it are designed in exacting nature to provide that for God's people. All of those instruments are going to be used as a part of what? The sacrificial system. This is the very beginning of it. And this sacrificial system that is being constructed right here in great detail is reminding Israel of their great need for a mediator, of their great need for propitiation, for an offering averting the wrath of God. And so in God's love, in God's grace, he draws near to people even in their sin through this system. And God is saying, this is the way through this sacrificial system that the penalty that was due to you will be melted out so that you can be clean before a holy God. Through this way, through this way, it is the grace of God. <laughs> and so this very system that's being constructed here is a reminder that though they fall in sin, though they uh, are marked by unholiness, the divine work of God is, is going to be accomplished through this way. Mediation is required. It's required. There's no other way to get to him. The mercy seat then simultaneously speaks of God's nearness to his people. He's right there. He's dwelling among them. He's tabernacling with them right? Speaks to his nearness, but it also speaks to the fact that they cannot have communion with God apart from atoning blood sacrifice. Crystal clear. And the way it's designed and the way that it's set up, his presence, the mercy seat, cannot be approached outside of this blood sacrifice. It's the way it's set up in God's word. So these two things that are seemingly like 
mercy, the mercy of God and blood sacrifice, they seem on opposite ends and to God, they're right here. They're spoken of in this same passage in great detail. They can have no communion apart from this blood sacrifice. Doesn't that point to the love and the holiness of God? It just speaks to the great love of God and the holiness of God. We just got done singing about it. That last song we sang was that, those two themes that we sing about in our hearts swell in worship, but then we're reading about what does that actually mean? What does that actually entail? Well, it's that. Today, um, there's a lot of people that want to have a God of love without a God of judgment, without a God of holiness, and without a God that has to answer for sin and rebellion. That's the cultural waters we swim in. That's the cultural waters we um, are faced with each and every day, no matter where you are, even here in the Bible Belt. Uh, A famous theologian was writing about theological liberalism and he said it this way and I I thought it was super helpful uh, and terrifying at the same time. He says, I'm using the word liberalism, but this is theological liberalism. It says, in liberalism, this theologian says, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of Christ without a cross. That's what so many think and do and believe. Is a God without wrath brought men and women without sin who are just good people into a kingdom with no judgment, do whatever you want through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. That is a, pardon my language, a damning statement. Um, and so whenever we hear, well, I, I just want a God of love, but not a God of judgment. It's whispers of that same statement that I just read. It's another manifestation of that same theological liberalism that when it creeps its way into a body of believers, spreads like wildfire. Because at that point, we can just worship a God of our own making just like in Exodus 32. It seems easier that way. So do not hear me saying, I'm not saying he's not a God of love. Yes, he is a God of love. But he is a God of holy love. And we see both in crystal clear detail, his holiness and his amazing love displayed in the tabernacle the very provision of these instruments of the sacrificial system indicates, yes, I will draw near to you. Yes, I love you. Yes, you are my people. Yes, I long to forgive you. But the very, at the same time, the same breath that those instruments declare that to us as God's people, the very same breath says those instruments also say, my dear people, church, God's people, my drawing near to you is going to be at the cost of blood. 
And of course, we know now on this side that it is not by the blood of animals that it's going to cost. It is going to be by the blood of his only begotten son that God will send to you and I, that we can be in relationship with him, that our sins can be finally and fully atoned for. The sacrificial system that happened over and over and over and over again for God's people was made final and fully complete in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we sing about him. That's why we love to worship him. So church, do not think that God does not take sin seriously. The whole sacrificial system is a foreshadowing of just how serious God is about his judgment so that his people might enter into a love relationship with him in justice. And that justice for unholiness, for sin, for his wrath to be poured out was met in Jesus on the cross who conquered and defeated death and rose again. That's why we're here. That's why we gather. We sing about it. We rejoice in it. The glorious realities of Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of the sacrificial system seen in Christ Jesus, our Lord. A couple things I want to point out, and then I'll be done. Three things, really, that strike me in this passage that I didn't want to just uh, glaze over. Um, One of them is this. There's a whole sermon in here. Um, But it's the passage of the provision of the bronze. We read it earlier by the ladies who are ministering in the tabernacle. You remember that little little section? That that just stuck with me. I'm like, what's going on here? So these, these, these ladies that are ministering in the tabernacle, that are there in the tabernacle, bring these mirrors. So back uh, 38, chapter 38, verse 8. He said, and he made the basin of bronze with its base of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered at the doorway of the tent of meeting or at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Another, or I think our translation is entrance. Another translation is the doorway. This is an amazing little statement right here, but think about this. There's these women in the tabernacle They're seemingly doing some menial work around the tabernacle. They're helping out with various things. And they bring bronze mirrors. Bronze mirrors. There wasn't really mirrors back in the day. They were made of like hammered out bronze. And most most, uh, historians think they're like these convex hammered out bronze that you can get sort of a, a glimmer of your own reflection. Where would these slave women have acquired such a thing? Well, if you remember, all of the treasure and all of the possessions they got, they got because God gave it to them as they were slaves in Egypt when they were leaving. It was, they, they were given these things because God knew what they would be utilized for. And so presumably, these women that were slaves to the women in these palaces in the Egyptian courts These Egyptian women gave them this very valuable, prized possession, a mirror, a bronze mirror, that they could see their own countenance. They could see their own reflection. They could see what they looked like. And here, these slave women 
had these and they brought them to the Lord. Um, they brought them. This is this precious possession, these rare things that would actually allow you to see your own reflection, to see what you looked like, which was a rarity in the ancient world. Laid them down and gave them up. Um, as poor as these women were, they brought what was probably their most valuable thing they owned. And the only thing that they could even see what they even looked like to the world around them. And they said, it's yours, God. Even my own reflection, the only time that I've ever been able to see it, that I can now hang in a place of my own, God, it's yours. There's a whole sermon in there. This also reminds me of the widow's might. Though they had nothing, they gave everything. They gave it to the tabernacle. And the very fact that says they're ministering women here reminds me of David's statement, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of iniquity. <laughs> That's exactly what these women were doing. They're doorkeepers at the tabernacle and they brought their all and they said, it's all for you, God. Even in their poverty, they gave everything. It's amazing. Um, uh, second thing it's striking how much these people gave I mean doesn't it strike you these are former slaves it's just so it's, it's, and I know they, they, they got most of it from Egypt but not all of it all the wood the acacia wood all the different things the skill to be able to craft it the time to be able to craft they gave of just think about the immense amount of time the, the trees that were cut the things that, were, that had to be given and there's many commentators that have added all this up as best they can to say well how much was it what did all this look like what did this free will, will offering that Michael talked about last week how much was it all and it was so much so that they were like, okay, enough already. We have too much. Stop giving. What, what did that look like? How much of all of these things did it account for? Well, the precious metals, many commentators say it's roughly a ton of gold, four tons of silver, and three tons of bronze. Um, it reminds me of David, his statement. I will not offer a sacrifice to the Lord that costs me nothing. 2 Samuel 24, if you want to read about the context of that story. They brought it all, and they just kept bringing it. Um, I think it tells us something of the costliness of sacrifice, doesn't it? These slave people, now freed, are giving a ton of gold, four tons of silver, and three tons of bronze. And none of this was demanded, remember? It wasn't like, you better give all this away. Like, I gave it to all of you, you better give it, right? It, was, it wasn't a strong arm. Remember, it was a free will offering. Let him who is moved in his heart give. They were overjoyed to do this because the presence of God is gonna dwell with us. So if there's no forgiveness without atonement, one could argue here that there's no worship without personal cost. And that's a, that one's tough. 
Because now, where's our heart? What are we holding on to so tightly that we're unwilling to let go of? Um, yeah, maybe we need to chew on that. Lastly, last thing. Exodus 39 is talking about the priest's wardrobe. Um, I'm not going to read through all of this. I want you to go back and read Exodus 39, but I want to make a quick point about Aaron here. Um, Remember Aaron, and then think about this statement. Have you ever done something so sinful you wonder, really, you wonder, could God ever let me serve him again? You've done something so bad. You've done something so rebellious. You have something in your past that you think that is a wall that I can never break through and God will never let me serve his people and his purposes ever again. It's too terrible. Maybe it's an act of uh, immorality. Maybe it's a failure in leadership. Maybe uh, it's just an act of sheer rebellion. I knew I wasn't, but I did it anyway. And I just went for it. Maybe it's something you've just never even, you're still holding on to. Or maybe it's something you confess every single time you walk in the doors of a church. It weighs on you in that way. That was Aaron. Aaron did something like that too. Although chosen to be high priest over the house of God that would see all of these things in the sacrificial system in communion with God and his people and to mediate, he was the one that was going to stand in the gap to help all of that see uh, to come to light. Aaron committed a terrible sin when Moses, you remember, on the mountain getting the instructions for all of this that we've just seen play out in the construction of the tabernacle, Aaron led his people in idol worship to another God and had them bow down to a golden calf. Of all the people to choose to be the one, the priest in that very tabernacle, I wouldn't pick Aaron. Not after that. God says, that's my God. It's you. How? How was he able to serve? How was he able to serve in the house of God as a priest described in Exodus 39? Um, He was able to serve because although he was fallen, he was forgiven. He was forgiven. We're gonna see a little bit in this next week. He was washed with holy water. He confessed his sins. He placed his hands on the head of a bull and two rams and they were sacrificed to make atonement for his sin. And through the cleansing of the water and the sacrificial blood applied to him, he was set apart to serve in the house of God and God's people. Church, fast forward now. Because of Christ and his sacrificial atoning blood applied to us and our sins that we think are so grave, and that we can never overcome, that we can never get past, that God can never use me. He calls us now a kingdom of priests like Aaron. That through the cleansing blood and the final and full sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, he took on all of our failings, he took all of our sin, and he cleansed us and washed us clean. He says, now come, serve, lead. Get in the fight. I'm... I've taken care of it. You've confessed and I've forgiven. Now go. Quit sitting on the sidelines. It's time to get in. 
You're a kingdom of priests. You're ministers of reconciliation of this great and good news of a God who came to forgive a sinful people, to make a way that we can be in right relationship with this holy God that longs to pour out his love on us and to dwell amongst us as his people. That's all through the blood of Christ. Come now and serve. It reminds me this story just like Christ and Peter at the very end. They're on the beach and Jesus calls to him and says, go feed my sheep. He's like, surely he doesn't believe. Go feed my sheep. Go feed my sheep, Christ says. Go feed my sheep. He says it over and over and over again to the undeserving. Church, that's us. Though undeserved, we are fully forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And he says, go feed my sheep. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we are grateful that you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That you are a holy God, but you are a God of love. That you will never compromise on your holiness, but at the same breath, you always provide a way. And so God, I pray that we would be a people of your word, that we would follow your word and we would follow in what it means to be forgiven, to walk in holiness, to receive propitiation, to receive forgiveness, to receive the grace and mercy that you want to bountifully pour out on us and undeserving people and that you could look at us like you looked at Aaron and like Jesus looked at Peter and said, go, feed my sheep. There's no sin too great. Would you just come to me and I will forgive. And would you have the blood of Christ applied to our hearts so that his forgiveness can wash us clean that we can now be agents of reconciliation in his grand plan and introduce more people to this wonderful love. Lord, would you begin to do that in the hearts of the men and women in this room? Lord, if there's anyone in here that's maybe holding on to that one thing that makes them unforgivable, Lord, would maybe today for the first time they confess it to you. They lay it at your feet. And when they ask for forgiveness, and Lord, I thank you that you are a gracious God and that through the blood of Christ, you can forgive and you do forgive and you don't leave us there but you build us up and you send us out into your service. So Lord, would you start a work like that in our midst and undeserving people clinging to the grace and mercy of God now sent out as your ambassadors. We love you. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Church, would you stand?